Welcome, everyone. We're going to get started. Uh, today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Henry Masur. Dr. Masur is the Chief of Critical Care Medicine uh, at the NIH and has been so since, I guess, 1989. Um, he is, coincidentally, has had a clinical professor uh, appointment here at, at University of Maryland uh, since 92 as well in the, in the Department of Anesthesi Anesthesiology. The, um, and... You know, in going through his uh, CV and his background, it's a uh, uh, truly impressive one, and it's, and it's an honor to have him here talk to us. He's, uh, in terms of his um, experience with HIV in the ICU, which is his topic today, he's chaired multiple committees uh, for the Society of Critical Care Medicine, as well as Infectious Disease Society of, um, of America on topics of fever in the ICU, prevention of collapse. He's... he's has over uh, well over 300 peer-reviewed publications on topics such as these, and uh, he's been on the editorial board of the Journal of AIDS, Critical Care Medicine, Antimicrobial Agents, and Chemotherapy, and he's the a past president of the Infectious Disease Society of America. So, Dr. Masur, thank you very much for uh, coming here and, and taking your time to enlighten us on this topic. It's interesting that um, I started my career in... Uh, at NIH as the assistant director of the ICU. And at that point, having an interest in AIDS and having an interest in critical care seemed to be logical because most patients with AIDS wound up in the ICU sooner or later. I think clearly uh, the management of HIV AIDS has changed, as we'll talk about briefly, so that now we really have two populations. We have some population that you all recognize that uh, aren't aware of their HIV or aren't under care, so they come in with the traditional AIDS-defining illnesses. And then there are the other patients who are coming in for things completely unrelated to HIV, and I think we have to be careful about how we manage them as well. I'd like to touch on both of those uh, populations. But I just want to start by saying that uh, all of you are already in fellowships, but for any of the residents of the RSH people were always interested in people who uh, want to make the University of Maryland hopefully their number one place to come for training, but NIH ought to at least be on your radar for number two. So uh, we're always interested in finding uh, people for uh, junior faculty and uh, fellowship slots, so just keep that in mind. We also are very proud of some of our famous graduates, uh, and uh, I won't see if any of you recognize these people, but... Uh, uh, we also have some, some of the younger people, like uh, Rachel Greenberg, who is uh, here uh, uh, in a joint program, is now at Cleveland Clinic, uh, and Janine Gifford, who is still here. So in our joint uh, critical care pulmonary program with Jeff Hasdy, again, that's been a real asset for us, both in terms of um, being able to uh, recruit good people and getting them good training and getting them into good jobs. So uh, we appreciate uh, uh, that alliance. Looking back at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, I think then as now, we all recognize that there are plenty of patients. And again, when you, when you give this talk, you have to be very careful because coming into the auditorium is Dr. Redfield. So, you know, I have to be careful what I say. So all the things I said about Bob before, uh, don't uh, believe. Uh, so we started out with lots of patients in the ICU who looked like this with pneumocystis or other pulmonary disease. And I think we have to remember that there was an era when AIDS was not as mainstream as it is now. And just again, to remember that 
in the early 1980s, when there were AIDS patients in the ICU, it was very controversial about how to manage these patients. There were ICUs and surgery programs that would not uh, take care of patients with HIV. It wasn't clear what the transmission uh, pattern was. So there was a lot of uncertainty about what the cause was, how dangerous these patients were to uh, uh, medical staff. And it really re-entered re an era when the medical profession had been very uh, protected from acquiring disease for many years. And suddenly, after the risk of acquiring TB was less than it had been before, the risk of acquiring other contagious diseases, uh, AIDS became a big issue in terms of what the likelihood was that you would acquire this. And it wasn't immediately clear that this was only acquired by percutaneous needle sticks or once in a while by other exposures. And obviously, there was a, late, a lot of national angst about how much research support we would provide to understand this epidemic. There was a lot of angst about who would take care of these patients and what the risk was. And NIH was certainly a much more interesting place then because uh, we had groups that wanted to storm the uh, NIH. We had bonfires in, uh, in front of uh, uh, the administrative building. And I think in many ways, this activism started a whole new era in terms of consumer um, participation in medical care that really changed the face of medicine for the better. So that now not only do we consider what the patient groups and the advocacy groups want, but starting with the AIDS epidemic, these groups now have a seat at the table for most guidelines and most FDA hearings, the other public, public policy. So AIDS in many ways really changed the uh, face of American medicine. I think we all realized that from the 1980s when we were dealing primarily with opportunistic infections, and these patients were often in the ICU, we went from an era when we had no therapy to where we had complicated therapy with a lot of interactions, which we'll get back to, to an era where we have lots of different regimens, some as simple as one drug a day. And this has really made it much more feasible for patients to adhere to a regimen and to be successfully treated for their lifetime. But while that is possible, it is sobering to look at the data in Baltimore or Washington at how few patients are actually successfully managed. We just submitted an abstract to uh, the retroviral meetings in which we looked at a new database that we have in Washington that essentially follows all HIV-infected patients who sign informed consent. We have about 6,000 patients in that uh, cohort now. And of these 6,000 patients who are invested enough in their care that they would sign consent to enter this prospective uh, uh, cohort, only 40% have durable viral suppression. We're very interested in the group that did not sign uh, informed consent. They pr presumably, uh, or they may be doing worse. But the point is, although we have the scientific information on how to manage patients effectively, we are doing terribly operationally. And Bob Redfield has really been a pioneer in both Baltimore and outside the country in how we operationalize care better. But for all the problems we see outside the United States, I think we all recognize that in the United States, we're doing a terrible job at getting people to, um, uh, to have access to care and to be able to adhere to care. So Janine, you missed your picture. Uh, so uh, uh, I'll show you later. So I guess the point is, if you look scientifically, 
I think while there's a lot of um, concern about what we don't know about HIV, if you look at where we've gotten in HIV since 1981 when the first articles came out on this, it's worthwhile reflecting for just a moment that in 1981, we understood what the phenotype of an AIDS patient was, but we didn't understand about retroviral patients, retroviruses, and we didn't understand about the etiology. Within three years, Bob Gallo and others had developed both, had understood what the virus was that caused this, had developed a serologic test which was uh, quickly available to understand who had latent infection and who had fluorid disease, and that was really uh, the beginning of a revolution of understanding transmission, understanding epidemiology. Within several years, we learned how to monitor CD4 counts and viral load, which was a huge step. And if you think for a moment, there are almost no immunodeficiencies where we have as good a way of monitoring the degree of susceptibility to infections as we do with HIV. Admittedly, neutrophils are a very good way of looking at susceptibility to bacterial infections, but CD4 counts are really a very sensitive and specific indicator of susceptibility only for HIV-AIDS, not for other immunosuppressed patient populations. So the recognition that we could look at susceptibility to infection was really a major milestone. We developed combination antiretroviral therapy by the late 90s, and at this point, we are able to eliminate HIV in many populations. In this country, there's very little maternal uh, fetal uh, transmission anymore. There have been very few bloodborne uh, uh, infections in the last 20 years. Uh, and we clearly have the capability of managing this disease much more effectively. And if you look at the data, it's important to understand the data you're looking at. I know that in this era we read up to date, we look at the abstracts, we look at the figures, but understanding the data you look at, I think sometimes gives you a different reflection of uh, what the real situation is. So I think in almost every lecture about opportunistic infections, someone shows this uh, diagram, which is from the HIV outpatient study uh, done by CDC, and this shows true and valid data that if you look at CMV, pneumocystis, MAC, from the late 90s when we started using antiretroviral uh, drugs that were potent, the number of these infections in the HOP study has gone down dramatically. We do have some problems, though, and I want to show you two problems. One is, if you look at the number of new cases, before patients are able to get the benefits of antiretroviral therapy, you have to recognize two things. One is, if you look at the incidence of HIV in the last year that we have it, it's 50,000 new cases per year. And the question is, is this a high number or a low number? Well, if you look at the trends in terms of preventing HIV, we have not really had a major impact on prevention in the last 20 years. Now, you could say the population in the United States has gone up, but we have about 50 or 55,000 new cases per year. So that before you can benefit from antiretroviral therapy, in Baltimore, you still obviously have lots of patients who come in not knowing they have HIV uh, with their opportunistic infections. So those are the patients we see in the emergency rooms, and those are the reasons that you need to know how to manage opportunistic infections. So we really have two populations of patients in 2014. 
Those who are unaware of their HIV and not in effective care, and they're the ones who develop opportunistic infections, and we'll review uh, some of the highlights of managing those OIs. And then there's a population that I won't talk much about, those who are aware of their HIV, who are effectively vi uh, virally suppressed, and those are the patients that have chronic liver disease, accelerated atherosclerosis, uh, chronic renal failure, and probably have a neurocognitive uh, problem. And that's a group that we're hoping with Bob Redfield that we're going to be able to expand some very exciting programs, especially focusing on hepatitis C. But in terms of looking at opportunistic infections, I showed you that slide before from the HIV outpatient uh, study, and this is another way of looking at it. So if you look at the data on pneumocystis on the left and esophageal uh, candida on the right, as with that line graph that I showed you, you can see here that pneumocystis, esophageal candida, or a number of other opportunistic infections have gone down dramatically. But the point I want to make that dovetails with the issue about two different populations in the United States is if you look at another study, which is based on uh, discharge summaries, there has been a decline in pneumocystis, there has been a decline in esophageal candida, but it's not, it's not uh, uh, nearly as dramatic. And the reason for this is that the out, HIV outpatient study, the HOP study, are patients who are in care, many in private practices. Those are patients who come back regularly. So in order to be in that uh, study, you have to come back to your doctor regularly. That's a different population from the people who come into hospitals once, which are reflected in the red um, uh, lines. So the point is, we have two different populations in the United States, and when you read a study about how wonderfully we're doing in terms of reducing morbidity, in terms of reducing complications. It really depends on the population that you're look at, looking at. So since you're a critical care group, let's focus on what critical care people uh, need to focus on. Uh, and the first issue is why patients are admitted to the ICU. It's interesting that there's very little data about this. And I suspect that if someone here wanted to collect your data on why patients are admitted to the ICU with HIV, uh, it's probably a publishable study because there's very little out there. And the only data I could find was from Lawrence Huang at the San Francisco General. I think, I, show, I think it shows a number of trends that you could probably surmise, but at least it puts a face on it. And that is that the number of ICU admissions at San Francisco General, which again is a city which is a little different from Baltimore, is a city where there's a very high penetration of care in the HIV community. So there are not that many patients who are not in care, which I think is different from Baltimore or Washington. But the number of ICU admissions is going down, but the number on antiretroviral therapy is going up. And what that means is that when we have patients on antiretroviral therapy coming to the unit, whether it's for an AIDS-related or an AIDS-unrelated problem, we have to make sure that we manage it correctly. And we'll get into that in a moment. But you can make some major mistakes with antiretroviral therapy, which the patient will suffer from the rest of his life or her life. The number with AIDS-related diagnoses is still, has been low for the last uh, five years. What this means is the majority of patients are coming in for diseases which are not in the original AIDS definition. They have my myocardial infarcts, they have strokes, or they may have completely unrelated issues like motor vehicle accidents or some other kind of trauma. So a lot of the patients, you have to know they have HIV for a variety of reasons, but you're not dealing with an AIDS-defining or an AIDS-related disease. 
but still a substantial number of them still die in the hospital, 30%. So the incidence is down, but we have a substantial number of people who come into the ICU for something other than HIV. Now, hopefully everybody in this room recognizes that anytime you have a patient with HIV in the ICU, you need to know something about their CD4 count, their viral load, what prior opportunistic infections they have. And obviously, this will predict the likelihood that the problem that brought them into the ICU is going to be, a, is, uh, or what problem that's going to be. Uh, it's also important to know their current medications, which we'll get uh, into in a moment, because their antiretroviral regimen, whether you continue to stop it, has major implications. And for many of the drugs, there are major drug interactions that can cause really substantial toxicity if you don't manage them effectively. And one of the things I think you have to remember is that for an intensive, I actually think that it is not feasible to manage the antiretrovirals yourself. I think you probably need an ID person because there's so many drugs with so many different uh, metabolic pathways, so many different interactions. I think that anytime you have somebody with HIV in the ICU, you really ought to automatically get uh, an ID com consult, even if the patient has a relatively straightforward problem, because the drug interactions are a major issue. So let's look at a couple of those issues. First of all, what infections are HIV-AIDS patients most susceptible to? And again, as I mentioned before, this is the only immunosuppressed patient population, unless Paul or Ellis or somebody want to take issue with this, where I think CD4s are a good indicator of susceptibility to infection. And we could debate the sensitivity and specificity of uh, CD4 counts in transplants or in cancer patients, but it really does not have nearly the accuracy as it does in HIV-AIDS. So we know that there are a number of AIDS-defining opportunistic infections. And I think it's worth just thinking for a moment about this particular constellation. And I always think that it's fascinating that if you look at this constellation of infections, pneumocystis pneumonia, toxoplasma, encephalitis, CMV retinitis, this is really a different constellation of infections than almost any other immunosuppressed patient population. There are infections here that you see in transplants, there are infections you see in um, cancer patients, but the manifestation or the organ target in an HIV-infected patient may be different. For instance, CMV in a transplant patient will cause pneumonia, uh, can cause fever, but retinitis is much less common in a transplant population than in AIDS, whereas pneumonia you almost never see in a patient with HIV, as we'll get into, whereas it's very common in transplants. So this constellation of manifestations is really very characteristic of AIDS and is different from any other patient population. But also keep in mind that when we're looking at opportunistic infections, in North America, the constellation of infections, which I showed you, is very different from the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, TB is the major issue. And often TB occurs before patients get a low enough CD4 count to get those other manifestations. So especially when we're looking for emigrants uh, uh, in this country, TB also has, uh, has to be a major consideration because in most of the world, that's the major opportunistic infection. When do opportunistic infections occur? Again, in HIV-AIDS, CD4 counts are a wonderful indicator of susceptibility. And it's interesting for a moment just to uh, 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 look back at how CD4 counts were recognized to be a good indicator. And it wasn't 
Um, it was really from shoe leather uh, research. The pulmonologist in our group, Fred Ogdenbenny, uh, who was doing all the bronchoscopies on HIV uh, patients, kept a book of all the CD4 counts and viral loads in patients with opportunistic infections. At that point, it was well known that CD4 was a good prognostic sign for uh, longevity and death, uh, duration uh, until death. It wasn't clear what the relationship to individual infections was. But Fred collected all this data, and he noticed that there's a very tight correlation between the diagnoses for pneumonia, uh, various kinds of pneumonia, and the CD4 count. And then he expanded that to other things like uh, mycobacterium avium. So careful evaluation of clinical data really led to a very useful diagnostic test. And hopefully everybody is very familiar with these ranges and knows that for pneumocystis, for instance, uh, a CD4 count of 200 is generally used as a cutoff for who is susceptible and who isn't. But you also need to recognize that these are all biologic parameters. So there is no absolute cutoff. Where did the cutoff of 200 for pneumocystis come from? Well, in fact, most cases of pneumocystis do occur uh, below 200. But as we'll see in a slide in a moment, about 10% of cases occur above 200. So the question is, where did the number of 200 came, come from? Well, a guideline meeting 25 years ago, the question was, should it be 180, should it be 200, should it be 250? We decided that most people only remember round numbers, so we picked 200. So where these numbers come from is somewhat arbitrary, but I think they're still useful as long as you recognize that you can't rule out pneumocystis if somebody is 225 or 250. It just makes pneumocystis uh, much less likely. And the same is true for, say, cryptococcal meningitis, Toxo or CMV, seeing somebody over 100 CD4 counts is very uh, unusual. So knowing a patient's most recent CD4 count is important. Knowing their nadir CD4 count, I think, is interesting to the ID people. I don't think it has a lot of practical uh, uh, value in terms of uh, managing individual patients. But knowing their recent CD4 count is clearly crucial. It's also important to recognize the issue about nadir uh, infections, and that's uh, demonstrated here. Again, I think there's a lot of interest in the literature about nadir uh, CD4s, but if you look at these three patients, patient A, who never really uh, uh, fell below about 400, patient B, who was put on antiretrovirals when his CD4 count was 100, and now is at 400, and patient C, whose uh, nadir was 50, with antiretroviral therapy is up at 400. Those three patients have essentially the same likelihood of acquiring an opportunistic infection. So the nadir is important in terms of subtle analyses, but in terms of your practical uh, uh, focus, although you know when Dr. Redfield comes into the ICU, he may pimp the resident on what the nadir CD4 count was. Uh, I think, in fact, the most issue is, the most important issue is what the most recent one was. So moving from CD4 counts to antiretroviral therapy, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's a complicated issue, and you have to recognize how complicated it is. The reason that we're concerned about antiretroviral therapy is if you allow somebody to have subtherapeutic levels and they develop resistance to a drug, which can happen within a few days or a week with drugs like efavirenz, that patient will develop resistance 
which is archived, and they will forever lose the class of drugs that you allow them to become resistant to. So the question is, when somebody comes into an ICU, do you continue them on the antiretrovirals if you can't be certain how, how much they're going to absorb? And these drugs are almost all oral. There are almost none that are parenteral. So the question is, do you continue it and have uncertain levels potentially allowing resistance to occur? Because resistance is much like, more likely to occur if you have subtherapeutic levels than if you're not on drug. So this is a complex issue, and I think you really have to work with the ID people on but there are absorption issues. Uh, there are toxicity issues. You need to know the toxicity of these drugs. And with 24 different drugs and various combinations, that's complicated. The drug interactions are a major issue. Because, for instance, if you have somebody who's on ritonavir, the level of drugs that are metabolized in the liver will often be markedly higher. So that if somebody's on ritonavir, you have to think of what uh, CYP450 uh, drugs you're using, and it may elevate your Coumadin, it may uh, elevate your antiarrhythmics. So that's a complex issue you need your PharmD or your ID people to help you with. On the other hand, uh, if somebody, uh, there are other drugs that lower uh, the serum levels of concurrent drugs. So the drug interactions are very complicated, and you really need help uh, with that. Resistance, I mentioned, and we'll get into immune reconstitution, but if you're thinking of starting antiretrovirals in the ICU, you should recognize the issue about being certain they're going to absorb the drugs and then what you're going to do when you start them. Some of the drug toxicities just in the ICU that you should be aware of is abacavir, without going into a lot of detail, within the first six weeks of starting abacavir, you can see a distributive shock picture often with uh, desquamating rash. So that's something that when somebody comes in from the ER with distributive shock, whereas you think of sepsis, uh, you think of, um, uh, of adrenal insufficiency, there are a variety of things you think about. If they have HIV and they've started a new antiretroviral regimen relatively, quickly, relatively recently, you can save their life by stopping the abacavir. Uh, with ritonavir, as I mentioned before, there are a number of drug interactions, and if you wind up with toxically high levels, uh, you may not understand why that's happening, but again, knowledge of these drug interactions is important. There are other things you should, real, you should uh, recognize, azanavir causing renal obstruction by uh, crystallizing the urine, uh, a number of drugs causing uh, hepatitis, uh, and drugs like dapsone causing methemoglobinemia. So the point is, the uh, pharmacy related to HIV uh, involves a lot of drugs that you're not terribly familiar with. Again, I would encourage you not to try to do this yourself, but to get the PharmD and the ID people involved. So I guess I asked Paul, so what is this? Now it's a flower. Any, anything further? What, what, what this topic uh, brings uh, into Dr. Cowan? Uh, there aren't any, any uh, uh, horticulturists? All right, Janine will tell you this is an iris. Um, so one of the issues if you're going to start uh, antiretroviral uh, or if they've started it, there are a number of syndromes you should be aware of. So this is iris or the immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome. So what this means is if you've started uh, antiretroviral drugs recently, there are a number of syndromes that you should watch for, some of which will wind up with a patient in the ICU. So for antiretroviral therapy, again, we worry about getting adequate levels. We worry about drug interactions. We worry about toxicities. 
but we also worry about these syndromes, some of which can have life-threatening consequences. So here's someone who had never uh, been aware of having a, um, uh, an opportunistic infection before. Uh, they were started about two weeks previously on um, a new antiretroviral regimen. They developed uh, these lymph nodes here, and if you look on uh, these lateral neck films, you can see that when you go from the left hand uh, here where there are large nodes to these huge necrotic nodes, you can just imagine how they can impinge on the esophagus or on the uh, uh, bronchus. And I think one of the most dramatic cases we saw uh, a number of years ago uh, was somebody who uh, developed esophageal obstruction due to this uh, and um, uh, wound up having a surgical procedure because we didn't know as much about iris uh, then as we do now. And ultimately, uh, I think if uh, we had treated the patient with steroids, they probably could have uh, avoided that surgical procedure. But again, any place that there are either live organisms or latent or, or, uh, or antigen, perhaps due to an infection that was treated weeks or months before, you can get this enhanced uh, inflammatory syndrome. And this can happen before the CD4 count goes up. As soon as your viral load goes down, you have enhanced immunologic uh, activity. And you can see this within a few days of starting uh, uh, a new antiretroviral uh, uh, regimen, or you can see it uh, uh, several weeks, generally not several months later. A more dramatic case might be this case of respiratory failure, and this is actually taken from the literature. This is a patient who comes in with pneumocystis on day zero. They have a marginal um, PO2. They're starting on trimethramsulfa and steroids. Uh, a week later, they're much better. Their PO2 is normal. And for a variety of reasons, uh, which might not be the best of reasons, this patient was started on antiretroviral therapy. And within a few days, 11 days later, the patient uh, developed respiratory failure with these infiltrates that began as unilateral and became bilateral. And while it's hard to prove in an individual patient exactly what's happening, what presumably is happening in this patient and in many other patients who have been described with this is when you've done bronchoscopy and ruled out other viral etiologies, you've ruled out uh, concurrent infections, which you can find in about 5% of cases with pneumocystis, they don't have pneumococcus, they don't have uh, cryptococcus. What presumably is happening based on the biopsies in, and autopsies in some of these patients is that although the pneumocystis are dying, you develop a much more intense inflammatory reaction, even though the patient was also on steroids, and the patients can get uh, uh, worsening uh, 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 hypoxemia and, in some cases, deaths. So this inflammatory reaction, whether it's related to an infection that was never previously noted or one there that is, uh, has been treated, as long as there's antigen present, you can see these inflammatory uh, syndromes in virtually any organ. And it's just something to be known to know about because while you have to work the patient up for an active infection or for a new infection, you need to recognize if you don't find anything else, one possible solution is that this is related to iris and the patient may or may not benefit from steroids. What are the causes of severe pneumonia? Without going through all the causes of severe pneumonia, I think there are a couple of issues that intensivists need to recognize. First of all, the most common causes uh, of HIV-associated pulmonary disorder 
Our pneumococcus is probably the most common cause, particularly worthwhile. We don't see that much hemophilus. But just keep in mind, depending on where you are, if you're outside the United States or you're looking at an immigrant, TB is always a major issue. And just keep in mind that once somebody has HIV and we focus on opportunistic infection, there's no reason why these patients don't get common community-acquired pathogens. So you also have to work them up for common viruses like influenza, uh, for atypicals like mycoplasma. There's no reason why they won't develop these things. So again, the common organisms are shown here on the left, but don't focus just on pneumococcus and pneumocystis. Look for the whole range of community-acquired uh, pathogens when you do your differential. It's also interesting to look at the right side, and that is CMV, mycobacterium, avium, and herpes simplex. These organisms are often found in the secretions of uh, patients with HIV who have pulmonary disease, but almost never does CMV, mycobacterium avium, or HSV cause pulmonary dysfunction in a patient with AIDS. Now, I suspect, you know, in this group, some of you have seen some cases, a larger number think you've seen some cases, but the problem is that, again, CMV is very common uh, as a colonizer or as a subclinical infection in pulmonary secretions, CMV, mycobacterium, avium, HSV. But if you look at pathology or you look at autopsies, almost always these are not the cause of pulmonary dysfunction. Something else either in the uncommon list or in the common list is really the cause. So just keep in mind that you really need very convincing histology or cytopathology to convince yourself that CMV, mycobacterium, avium, or HSV is the cause of HIV-associated pulmonary disorders. Other populations, they clearly cause disease, just almost never in this. And if people you know, have exceptions to that, we could talk about that at the end of this. So also keep in mind that when patients come in with fever and respiratory dysfunction, it's not always an opportunistic infection. It's not always infectious. And as we say, see patients with uh, advancing age and those who have complications related to the accelerated inflammatory status, seeing more congestive heart failure, pulmonary emboli, pulmonary hypertension, drugs toxicity like a back hypersensitivity, and more and more AIDS-defining malignancies, some of which can be diffuse. I think you just have to keep this in mind, so don't focus only on infectious complications. So let's talk about a few of the specific uh, uh, organisms. Pneumocystis, I think you all uh, know a lot about, and again, uh, probably only the people of Ellis Kaplan's uh, era remember that it used to be called Pneumocystis carinii. It's been renamed. But this is an organism that is transmitted by a respiratory route. Uh, Dan can uh, tell us whether or not the patients ought to be in a room by themselves. I personally think that they should be, because another susceptible patient uh, can, qu they're clearly, uh, uh, studies which Joe Kovacs in our group has done showing that you can get person-to-person -person transmission if your people are, are have low CD4 counts, but it's admittedly a complicated issue with CDC guidelines. Uh, and that we recognize that HIV-infected patients are not the only patients who get uh, pneumocystis, but they're one of the larger groups. 
I mentioned before that this infection almost always uh, occurs in patients with CD4 counts below 200. But as I mentioned, just keep in mind that this is an arbitrary cutoff. So if a patient has a CD4 count of 300 or 400, they have HIV, and they have a compatible syndrome, pneumocystis may be not at the top of your list, but it ought to be a consideration in your diagnostic evaluation. The clinical features of pneumocystis are really not different from any other pulmonary disease. Just keep in mind that they're not all febrile. Uh, they don't all have a cough. It really depends on how early in their course you recognize them. The pulmonary, the uh, radiographic presentation, again, we all recognize the typical presentations, diffuse interstitial infiltrates. But again, hopefully as pulmonologists and intensivists, you all recognize the great variability from patient to patient so that you can, although you most often see a ground glass appearance that is symmetrical, you can see all sorts of different patterns. You can see unilateral disease. You can see upper lobe disease that looks like TB. Um, on the right there, you see somebody, uh, patients develop pneumatoceles. A classic presentation, particularly on the boards, is that the patient develops those pneumatoceles then drops their lung and comes into the emergency room with a unilateral pneumothorax. You see infiltrates on the other side. You get an HIV uh, uh, test. And while you could see this with TB or with fungus, this is classic for pneumocystis. So there are lots of different pulmonary manifestations. So don't get trapped into thinking that unless it's diffuse and interstitial that uh, it's not pneumocystis. You can see almost any presentation. We don't usually look at histology anymore, but just remember that the top left is what we used to look at. This is a silver stain, uh, and these are very characteristic, and a good uh, microbiologist or pathologist will recognize this specifically. Uh, it's harder to look at a GEEM sustain. The um, pathology is very characteristic. Even if you just do an H&E, if you see this amount of interstitial inflammation and this foamy uh, intraalveolar material. There is nothing else this can be except pneumocystis. Sometimes this can be mistaken for primary alveolar proteinosis. With alveolar proteinosis, you usually don't see as much interstitial inflammation. So a good pathologist will recognize the H&E without a special stain. But what most people do these days is a stain that was developed uh, in our laboratory, NIH, which is a monoclonal antibody. And this is 100% specific. There's nothing else in a human specimen that this will cross-react with. And that's what's used these days mostly on bronchovilovages, sputums, and on touch preps. So the diagnosis has really come a long way. We don't do open lung biopsies anymore. We do lavages or sputums. I don't know, Paul, how good are sputums here? Okay, well, so I think how good the sputums are, if you have the luxury of having respiratory therapists who can spend time with the patient and get a good sample, if the lab will spin it down, I think there are now probably a couple of dozen places that report over uh, 90 or 95 percent sensitivity with induced sputum. But admittedly, that's in an era of short staffing, sometimes hard to do. But a bronchoviral lavage should really never miss or almost never miss a case of pneumocystis. And most places, again, are doing immunofluorescence. Let me make one comment about PCR. As we go more and more to molecular tests, there are places that are beginning to do PCR for pneumocystis. And the problem with the PCR for pneumocystis, like the PCR for a lot of viruses, 
is it is a very sensitive test. So if you have a negative PCR, the patient does not have pneumocystis. The problem is if you have a positive PCR, you don't know where you are because many patients are colonized so that a positive PCR does not tell you the cause of pulmonary dysfunction. A negative PCR tells you it's not pneumocystis. So I think that's helpful, but you have to be careful about not overinterpreting a PCR if your laboratory goes all molecular. If you see CMV in the cytopathology, what does that mean? There's a lot of literature indicating that if you have a positive CMV cytology, you do just as well as if you have a negative. In other words, most patients do not need the CMV treated. Admittedly, if the patient is not doing well and you see lots of CMV uh, by cytology, even I would treat the patient uh, with gancyclovir. But I think most of the time, this is irrelevant to the patient's course. So a patient with pneumocystis and positive CMV cytology generally does not need to be treated for CMV. The therapy, I think, is all uh, well-known to you, trimethamsulfa. We just have to make sure that if a patient is hypoxemic with a PO2 under 70, that we make sure they get a proper dose of steroids, which you can look up. The question is, what do you do with a patient who, after four or five days, is failing their trimethamsulfa and corticosteroids? And it's interesting that after 30 years, we don't know much more about this than we did 30 years ago. There's never been a good trial as to what a good salvage approach would be, and the reason for that is it's too expensive to do a trial. So I think the best I can tell you is what we do, and that is to make sure that you verify the diagnosis that it wasn't made empirically or it wasn't made by a PCR, if they don't have something else. We usually repeat the bronchoscopy because in 5 to 10 percent of cases, you find another plausible cause of pulmonary deterioration. Uh, often that's a fungus like cryptococcus or histoplasma, but that can be other things as well. You want to make sure they're getting the right steroid dose. And then the question is, do you add pentamine, do you add clindopermaquine, or do you do something else? First of all, I think a bad choice would be atovaquone because oral, it takes a number of days for the uh, levels to get up. I think that's a bad choice. I've always been uncomfortable with clindopermaquine because the primaquine is only oral, and you can't be certain about its absorption. But the fact is that if you look at non-controlled studies, clindopermaquine is just as good as IV pentamine. I personally prefer IV pentamine, but as I think we all recognize, IV pentamine causes renal dysfunction, it causes pancreatic dysfunction, it causes uh, neutropenia, so it's a toxic drug. But whether you use clindopermaquine or pentamine, I think is a choice. Uh, there is not a data from one or the other. Whether you add it to trimethamsulfa or change is, again, uh, there is no good animal or human data to tell you. We generally add. But I think you need to be patient because generally patients do not start getting better from any regimen until somewhere between day four and day eight. So don't panic unless they're going downhill rapidly um, before day four. And that's the time to start thinking about what to do. And again, the situation is different if the patient is deteriorating versus if the patient simply isn't getting better. Again, you have to make sure there isn't a concurrent problem, even a non-infectious one. I think the one that's tripped us up the most is to think that the pa is not to think about the patient being in congestive failure, but uh, uh, to consider diuresing them, or even if you're bold to put in a swan. So let's switch gears for a minute to central nervous system uh, disease. What do you do about a patient with uh, mass lesions? 
you know, this happens to be a case of toxo, could be lymphoma, TB, or anything else. I think the point here is that in a patient with HIV, the two major considerations are toxoplasma and lymphoma. Uh, toxoplasma is never going to occur in somebody with a CD4 count over 100, or almost never. So if the CD4 count is under 100, it could be toxo or lymphoma. If it's over 100, it's either going to be lymphoma or one of these other issues, which is less common. And again, from somebody from outside of the United States, TB is always a consideration. But these other issues here, crypt, nocardia, a bacterial abscess, a gumma, a shagoma in somebody from Brazil, or even something unrelated to AIDS, like a glioblastoma, are all things to think about. But again, since the radiology is nonspecific, and the laboratory tests often don't give you the information, if you can do a toxo-PCR on the spinal fluid, if it's safe to do an LP or on the serum, that can give you a specific uh, answer. A cryptangium of the serum can once in a while give you uh, a, uh, an answer. But generally, you're going to use a two-week course of sulfapyrimethamine or trimethamosulfa, and only if the patient fails to get better with that do you do a more invasive uh, test. So the preferred regimen is sulfa and pyrimethamine, although clindipyrimethamine and sulfatrimethamine are adequate. I think the guidelines for a long time were not very enthusiastic about sulfatrimethamine simply because there wasn't much data on this combination as opposed to sulfapyrimethamine. But sulfadiazine and pyrimethamine are harder and harder to find. Uh, there is not an IV regimen uh, with uh, sulfadiazine and pyrimethamine. So now there's more and more information, especially from uh, sub-Saharan Africa. So I think in this era, su uh, methoxyl and trimethamine probably get equal billing as a regimen of choice. But if you want to use clindipyrimethamine, that's all right also. Just a couple of comments about cryptococcal meningitis. You all recognize the presentation of this. Again, most of these patients will have a CD4 count over 50, so seeing this in somebody with a CD4 count over 100 would be very unusual. Almost all of these patients have a positive serum cryptococcal antigen. So somebody with a negative serum antigen is very unlikely to have their fever and obtundation due to cryptococcal meningitis. If it's safe to do a uh, uh, LP, they'll virtually all have a positive CSF cryptococcal uh, engine. But just keep in mind that the issues about poor prognosis are obviously abnormal mental status, but a high opening pressure, and that's one issue that is intensivist we need to come back to. In terms of therapy, we'll come back to high opening pressure in a moment. One of the issues that often comes up is do you have to use liposomal amphotericin or can you use a better tolerated drug? And again, I don't know what uh, Dr. Joshi generally recommends or what Paul recommends. Uh, my personal opinion, what the guidelines say, uh, is that fluconazole is not first-line therapy in the United States. Outside of the United States, it's used often, but I think there is adequate data saying that response to fluconazole is not as good as amphotericin, so that liposomal amphotericin is the drug of choice. There is an intense debate, which is fairly boring, about whether you should use liposomal ampho or regular ampho. We haven't used regular ANFO in a long time. 
But liposomal amphotericin, again, there's a fairly abstruse debate about whether you should use flucytosine. I think you can or cannot, although the guidelines recommend it. You then switch to fluconazole if they're doing well. But one of the issues which I think we overlook are, is the morbidity associated with increased CSF pressure. And that's something that I think is intensive issue you need to recognize. Because patients are often obtunded uh, for a variety of reasons, but especially if their opening pressure is greater than 20 or greater than 25, and they're symptomatic, I think you need to consider tapping them on a regular basis to remove volume. Generally, what most experts recommend is, is uh, taking off a fairly large volume, uh, uh, you know, at least uh, 10 to 15 cc's and maybe uh, 25, uh, and do that daily until the patient is stable. And at some point, if the patient is not stabilizing their pressure is high, you need to put in a shunt, and there really are not good guidelines for doing that. But steroids, mannitol, acetazolamide are not recommended. So keep in mind that if the patient is not doing well in terms of their neurologic examination, regular tapping is important. The last point I want to make is about diarrhea. Everybody in the ICU or in our ICU has diarrhea. And in patients with HIV, I think we often get focused on the esoteric. Yes, cryptosporidia causes problems. Cyclospora causes problems. But, and there are other organisms. This happens to be microsporidia. But if you look at the data, what causes diarrhea the most often in patients with HIV is the same thing that causes most of our problems with diarrhea in non-HIV-infected patients. And this is a uh, study that was published in uh, CID a few years ago. So C. diff is the most common cause of diarrhea in hospitalized patients in the U.S. So just keep that in mind that, yes, Campylobacter, Shigella, Cryptosporidia, Microsporidia are important, but always look for C. diff. So I think in 2014, we all need to recognize that we have two populations of patients. I focused on the opportunistic infections uh, which we saw before the era of antiretrovirals and that we continue to see because of patients who do not have access to care or don't know their HIV. So opportunistic infections are still relevant to intensivists. You need to know how to take care of these. I think what we're going to see in the future is a different group of patients. There's more and more evidence that HIV and the inflammation that is related probably to low-level viremia that is below what our current assays measure cause accelerated aging. And that means accelerated coronary artery disease, accelerated uh, cerebrovascular disease, accelerated liver fibrosis associated with hepatitis C, accelerated renal disease. Those are the chronic diseases that we're going to see in our HIV patients who are well-maintained for 10, 20, 30 years. So again, that's going to require a different kind of prevention and a different kind of strategy. But I think for intensivists, opportunistic infections are still here, as this group in Maryland clearly knows, and something we need to clearly uh, remember how to diagnose and treat. Thanks very much.